Well, greetings here on Deep Background, the Deep Background, before the big election on November 8th. As always with me, my good friend and colleague Steve Kraske of KCUR is up to date. Hey, Hi, David. Steve. And the Kansas City Star. And then, of course, uh, Scott Cannon of the Kansas City Star. Of course. Great to have you with you, Scott, and I appreciate it. little house cleaning before we get into the big prediction show. Uh, we, we did uh, uh, an interview about 10 days ago with Hunter Woodall of the Star's staff uh, to talk about the judge's uh, retention election in Kansas. It's an important one, Which too. is very important yeah. and is finally getting some attention. Interestingly yes. enough, I saw, I heard a radio ad today, by the way, for people trying to get rid of the judges that was so misleading. I, I about got in my car and drove down there and and, and to give them a piece of my mind, I mean, it's very misleading stuff. So anyway, stay tuned for that in this podcast. We'll have it toward the end after we're done yakking at you uh, uh, about the upcoming elections. Okay, we're going to take a look at the big four, which I define as the Missouri governor's race, the Missouri Senate race, the Kansas third district race, and then the race for president of the United States. Before we get to that, do we see any other surprises anywhere else, <laughs> any other race, the you know, is the, does the streetcar pass? Do we, you know, what is there anything out there that's, uh, uh, Steve, that's um, uh, a potential huge surprise other than anything in those four races? Well, well, well two quick thoughts. One, I, I think the big story, a big story on Wednesday is going to be nothing about who won and who lost. It's going to be about the huge lines in Missouri, uh, folks stacked up at dinner time on Tuesday night, unable to go vote. Lots of forecasts that uh, going through this ballot is going to take 20, 25, oh, yeah. 30 minutes. And a lot of folks are going to be walking away and too frustrated to vote to stick through, uh, way through a long line like that. So that's something to think about as, as right. a forecast going ahead. I think the other thing that, that strikes me as a, as a remote possibility is is that Clay Chastain's uh, light rail thing passes because not on the merits of the proposal, but just over confusion over light rail versus streetcar, extending it to UMKC. This election is not about the streetcar. It's not about extending the streetcar out to the plaza in UMKC. It's about a multi-billion dollar plan uh, to do what Clay wants to do. And the Star and others have recommended a big no vote on that. Uh, and I would, too. You don't see anything, Scott, that's a big surprise or that, you know, uh, campaign finance limits or any of the other things that are on the ballot. You know, the Democrats are not going to take control of the Missouri legislature or the Kansas legislature. Any Anything out there that's a, sort of a landmark? Well, I hate to say it. I agree with Steve on, on both <laughs> the things he said. I, I also wonder if, if not locally but scattered, maybe locally scattered across the country, I think we're going to have— all this ugly election year is going to mean some some ugly moments at the polls, where one person is challenging another person's right eligibility to vote, and I, I just can't imagine that somewhere that's not going to get ugly. Yeah. Uh, in, in you know, you know, Trump is at, essentially in some ways calling on his folks to do that sort of thing. Um, people walk sort of. I mean. There's anger in this election, right. oh. and that's going to bubble over. Plus, plus there's some history of going to court at the last minute, trying yeah. to extend voting hours, not enough ballots, all that kind of stuff, particularly in Missouri. Right. I, I heard a, a story of, in some early voting in, in Johnson County. There was a guy in line, and he sort of started yelling, um, I'm for Trump, or something to that effect, which you can't do that right. when you're in to. the polling place. There's right. limits on how much would, what would be considered electioneering, how much you can do it. 
and people are saying like, you know, dude, chill out, which only got him more, you know, worked up. And you know, I think they ultimately removed this guy. There's no, no particular significance to what happened there, other than that that sort of thing is, you can see it getting worse, getting common. Yeah. And people think, you know, I've got a first minute right to to speak, to do whatever, and they don't quite understand it. We got particular roles around the, the holding pub. Right, we'll see what happens. Okay, let's go through the big four. The big four. In uh, sort of reverse order. Let's start in the Kansas 3rd District, the Republican incumbent Kevin Yoder against the Democrat Jay Seide. This race really snuck up on us. I think we all thought, well, perhaps competitive. You know, in presidential years, the Republican in, in the 3rd District always struggles a little bit, but certainly a safe seat if a close seat. Yet it doesn't seem that way. Steve, I'll start with you. How do you analyze that race? What kind of campaigns have the two candidates run, in your view, and uh, who, who do you like in that race? Well, well this race has been, uh, as you point out uh, so astutely, has been, been utterly surprising from day one. I thought in early to mid-September when Kevin Yoder threw up some ads against Jay Seide that pointed out that Jay Seide hasn't voted in a whole bunch of elections, to me that was a shot that was going to take Jay Seide out of the race early on. I thought that was a very effective ad, was going to under pin, undermine any momentum that Jay Seide might have had. But Jay Seide kept coming, if only because uh, Hillary Clinton is, is popular in the third district of, of Kansas, uh, and uh, Donald Trump is not. And that has dragged down Kevin Yoder to an extent that we just didn't expect here. No one knows Jay Seide. I, I think a qualified, a better qualified Democrat with some experience that people who had some support behind him might have won this race and won it kind of handily. Now, looking back in hindsight, I'm not sure Jay Seide is the guy who's going to do it. I wrote a column on him last week saying he's basically hidden, gone into hiding the last couple of weeks. Some of his supporters kicked back and said, well, he was at a picnic for Democrats and all this <laughs> stuff. But to me, that just didn't qualify. He didn't answer the hard questions. I just don't think he closed the case at the end of the day. I think Kevin Yoder's going to win. And just to point out how far Jay Seide has pushed Kevin Yoder, Kevin Yoder, I'm told, has drained his massive bank account to hang on to this well, race. And he's, and Two and a half, three, three million dollars just to hold on to this. And seat. he's calling in reinforcements from the National Republican yes. uh, establishment to try and save the Astonishing. Siege. Just astonishing. Uh, and, and the fact that he's still negative in his television presence at the end here suggests that it's very, very close. Let's leave merits aside, though, Scott. As a political matter, Jay Seide's decision to go underground is probably pretty smart. If you make it a referendum about Kevin Yoder, about the incumbent, and to a certain degree about Donald Trump. And by the way, the Democrats are making an explicit link between Yoder and Trump now. And Yoder and Sam Brownback, which has, of course, been really the, the real dynamic in the race. As a, as a political matter, maybe it makes sense for Seide to go into hiding and make it all about Kevin Yoder. Oh, I agree. I, I, I'm not comfortable tossing aside the merits. I, I, I mean, well, for, I get that. Uh, but, but, but yes, it was strategically smart for him. I think it's, you know, we've got a vested interest in these guys talking to us. It seemed reasonable that the, the guy running for Congress in the third district would talk to the largest news organization in the state a in little depth. more than he has. In depth. He's got some obligation because that's the one, the best way for voters to find out about this guy. Right. So why not talk? Particularly. To and I also think it was a little disingenuous for him to link Brownback to Yoder. It's the little apples and oranges there. It, it, mm -hmm. Rather than saying, here's what I want to do, here's where I dif disagree with. But effective politically. Right. Agreed. Society, in essence, is the proof of the thing we've talked about here repeatedly, which is 
politics is becoming all about strategy. It's nothing about merits. It's all about, you know, can we make a, you know, reach a message that tells voters a certain thing and the merits of it be damned, which I think is true of all the races this year. Who do you like in that race? Who do you think in the end? I think um, Yoder maybe by five points. And I'm partly, I'm looking back at some of these other races, sort of like the uh, the Roberts race uh, two years ago, that the Republican who seemed in trouble wasn't in trouble the way we thought they were. And I think that's probably what we'll see with Yoder in the end. I don't know. All right. We'll see. I, I'll just throw in my yeah, voice. I think, um, first of all, I think Kevin Yoder made a tactical error early in not taking this more seriously. I think he thought, as as we did, so you know, it, it isn't as if he's an idiot and we're brilliant, that maybe this race was not going to be as competitive as it turned out to be. And so I think, and I do think, as long as we're talking about the merits, you know, Kevin Yoder had the problem, which we wrote about in today's paper, of taking enormous sums from the payday loan industry. Uh, you know, he, if he's, he's broke he, now, he, at the end of this race, he might be doing it again down the road. He, 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 you know, was involved in this controversy over inserting a provision protecting banks. I don't want to get too deep into it, but that was a huge controversy in his career. And, and, and I do think that uh, he is more conservative as a voting member of Congress than his district. I think that, you know, he doesn't really, you know, and this happens a lot. It happened with Dennis Moore. Dennis Moore was more liberal than the right. third district understood. And, and and I think Kevin Yoder is more conservative than the yeah, third district Yeah, I looked at his numbers understands. today from the yeah. American Conservative Union. He's, he's very out I mean, there. the third yeah. district is, is primarily Johnson County, and it is primarily a moderate, good schools, anti-Brownback, part of the state and yeah, I mean, he's that the fact that he's more conservative than his district is probably reflective of house members across the country because the key is winning one's primary mm -hmm. right so he's he's just as conservative that's as his right. primary electorate and, right but i think that's exactly right as long as we're talking about the merits it shouldn't be just about the primary yeah. it's really got to be i mean i think you know, and Tim Hewell's camp sort of learned that lesson in a, in a hard way. Uh, so, you know, I, to me, I think Yoder still wins, but I think it's very, very close. I think it may be a one- or two-point race. I think Donald Trump is a huge drag yeah. on, on Yoder's chances in the 3rd District. I, you know, the 3rd District is, is the classic place where the Republican presidential nominee is potentially a drag on the outcome. Um, and, and I'm with you, Steve. Not only would another Democrat have had maybe a better chance, but had Seide been, Jay Seide been a little bit smarter, yeah. he might have had a better chance. Because while it may sound tactically wise to go into hiding, the fact of the matter is when the attention of the district turns to this race, that's when you need to be most visible. That's when you need to raise your head up and say, okay, we've disqualified the incumbent. Now, here's why I would be yes. a good member of Congress, yes. and I would not be an ally of Nancy Pelosi or anything. You didn't get any of that from Jay Saudi, and I think they'll look back if they lose by one or two points and say, yeah, that was a tactical mistake. We should have been a little more visible in the closing. Here's uh, a fun week. fact for you. The 3rd District uh, said uh, to be heading towards Hillary Clinton by eight or ten points. That's a pretty big margin. So I went back and checked. The last time Johnson County, Kansas, voted Democratic in a race for president, Woodrow Wilson in 1916. It'll be interesting to see if perhaps this year that changes. Now, yeah, yeah, but would it, could, the, could the district go for Hillary but not the county, yes, right? Yes, of course. you got right. Wyandotte. you got Wyandotte bringing in big money. Although, of course. apparently, uh, voter registrations are down a bit in Wyandotte County, which... 
is again yes. a problem for the Democrat and maybe a problem in the state of Kansas. Okay, so that we've got three Yoders uh, in the third district of Kansas. All right, let's go to the Missouri governor's race. Uh, Eric Greitens, the Navy SEAL, as we're reminded repeatedly, against Chris Coster, the Attorney General, the Democrat, and a, a you know a longtime fixture in Missouri politics. Scott, I'll go to you first this time. How do you analyze? It's dead heat in the last poll, literally tied 46-46 in the Monmouth poll this week. Um, what, do, what do we see? Yeah, there? I was a little surprised, I don't know about you guys, to see it that tight. I thought it was going to be Coster by maybe five points. Now it's narrowed, hasn't now, it? Now it's virtually nothing. And I kind of think the tie goes to the Republican in Missouri, I, but I'm not sure. I guess I'd still bet on Coster here. It helps that he's a former Republican, although he's running against a former Democrat. Um, I, I just think that the people go with the more familiar at the at the margins, and I, I think all this. I've been anti coattail effect, but now I'm sort of coming around at this year in Missouri that there'll be some relationship there, which will be a little bit of a drag for between the presidential candidates and the down ballot candidates. Right, and I think mm -hmm. that hurts Coster a little bit, but I think Coster edges it out. Well, yeah, this one's, this one's gotten tougher. I think Coster edges out in the end, too. Republicans have been saying for months, and Democrats have agreed, by the way, that if Donald Trump wins by 10 or more, that begins to have the coattails effect you're talking about, Scott, and that sweeps other Republicans along with him. So that so this that Monmouth poll had Trump ahead by 14 in Missouri. That's a little aggressive, it seems to me, but still... Um, something to really think about here. Coster is running against uh, type here, in a sense. The wave this year in American politics is to be the outsider and to be standing up to all things establishment. Chris Coster is raising his hand in Missouri and saying, hey, I've got the experience. This won't be on-the-job training for me. I know where the House is. I know where the Senate is. You know, I'm, I'm an experienced guy. I'm an insider, in a sense, is what he's saying. And it's going to be fascinating to see if he can pull this thing off with that approach to this campaign. Uh, I've long thought that he's the, one of the best closers we have in Missouri politics. You put his face on camera, he's very, very effective here. But I went to a rally for Greitens on Sunday night here in Kansas City. There was a little bit of energy there. He's got some energy. You know, clearly he's, they're pulling out all the stops to win this race. An enormous amount of money going to be spent here on Greitens' behalf, as well as Chris Coster. At the end of the day, I think Coster's spade work uh, in August when he got the Farm Bureau and the NRA and all these groups will probably make the difference for him. But, boy, this race has gotten tight. So you're Coster and you're Coster as well, yeah. roughly. Um, I think, again, this is an issueless campaign. That makes it yes. harder for us to sort of gauge it because we don't get a sense that there's any pivotal no. uh, difference between the two men uh, on transportation funding or school funding or tax policy or anything. It's much more about personality and and demeanor and the way uh, voters uh, you know look at the potential of either man being governor. And I think Coster, Chris Coster does win that argument a little bit only because the Eric Greitens is, remains, I think, an unknown in the state. He, mm -hmm. You know, it's the same problem that Jay Sidey has a little bit, which is you can run as an outsider, but at some point you, you have to sort of communicate some insider knowledge, if you will, yeah. so that people don't think yeah. they're betting on a blank slate. And, and I think that's particularly important in a governor's race because – 
uh, of all the actors in our pres- in, in our political system, the governor really has uh, almost the most influence of all. I mean, yes. it, you know, state laws and state policies. He's also the guy who has to run something. And he has to run the government, right? And you don't, the schools, you know, make sure that the highways are plowed when it snows. And so I do think people reach a judgment on governor. I'm not sure everybody gets to this point, but most people, I think, say, look, the governor has to meet a certain standard of yeah. knowledge and understanding. And in that sense... Uh, Eric Greitens, uh, I don't think, has, again, raised his profile high enough so that people feel a little more comfortable with that. Uh, and the other thing is, the classic way for a Democrat to win in Missouri, as we all know, is carry St. Louis, carry Kansas City heavily, win Columbia with the University of Missouri, and then hold your own in the rural areas and maybe pick off a few counties if you can. And I think Chris Coster may understand that better than almost anyone who isn't named Claire McCaskill. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that's how you have to, his latest ad, conservative Democrat, you know, that that's a guy who knows the only way you win in Missouri is as an Ike Skelton Democrat mm-hmm. and not as a Elizabeth Warren Democrat. Right. right. And here's so. the other way that the Democrats like Claire McCaskill win in Missouri is they run against somebody who got beat up in the primary. Right. And the sort of lingering image of Greitens, maybe the introduction to a lot of people of Greitens, was this guy grinning after he's shooting a machine gun, which played well in that particular primary. Yet it doesn't, it didn't introduce to voters in the general election this guy who's a Rhodes Scholar, he's well educated, he's written books, he's done humanitarian work. None of that really comes through, I don't think, for right. the average voter, right? They, you're more, most likely to remember the guy with the machine gun, right? Now, Missouri has never elected a governor with as little experience as Eric Greitens, perhaps with the exception of the first territorial governor back in the 1860s or something like yeah. that. That's something to think about. They've, we've never done it before. This is an extraordinary moment in the sense that this guy right. is as close and to And again, my case is that when, you're, when, when voters choose a governor, experience turns out to be probably the most important yeah. thing they look for, other, yeah. which they might not look for in any other office. But governor, you're right, Scott, runs things. And, and, and so I think Chris Coster wins that one again by one or two points at the end. So we're all on board. Okay, let's move on to the U.S. Senate race between the incumbent Roy Blunt in Missouri and uh, Jason Kander, the Democratic challenger. Polling again, there was an Emerson poll out as we tape this Wednesday morning. Uh, Dead heat, heat, 46-46. The Monmouth poll had Blunt plus one, certainly within the margin of error. Um, You know, both are going to be out on the trail all, all this week and next right up to Election Day. Steve, we'll go to you first. What, what, how do you analyze that race? It's been um, fascinating, by the way. Absolutely. A year ago, every rating service had this safe Republican. Yeah. Every single one. This was a, a safe seat. He was, you know, who knew Jason Kander? Blunt would win by eight or nine points. That does not seem likely today. If Jason Kander wins this race, he becomes the national boy wonder of Democratic politics everywhere. It'll be that kind of impact he'll have. Um, Boy, yeah, you know, he he has run a, a terrific race, maybe the best race we've Who, he, seen. Kander? Jason Kander, with, with, with the ad, with the blindfold ad assembling the military uh, rifle, you know, maybe the ad of the cycle anywhere in the country got so much attention and really put Jason Kander on the map. Um, I, I guess at the end of the day, I, I go back to uh, my thoughts earlier about Donald Trump leading in Missouri by as much as he does. And Scott, your comments earlier about at this point two years ago in Kansas, 
Pat Roberts was in a dead heat, but then pulled it out by nine or ten points. At the end of the day, boy, you know, Senator Blunt's name is very strong in Missouri. Uh, long, a long tradition of electing Blunt's uh, in this state, and I think he'll pull it out. But boy, I think it might be very, very close. Um, but hats off to Cantor for running a great ad. Be very interesting to see if he does wind up losing where he goes. If he wins, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I, I maybe just to so we have some disagreement here. I'll, I'll lean that Cantor's going to win, but I, it, it, I, I think it, part of it depends on Trump, which partly depends on the Comey letter, which we can get to when we talk about know. that. But <laughs> just that it slows things down and, and moves yes. the momentum in a certain way. You know, so much of the campaign anymore is TV commercials, and he had not only had the strong commercial, but the, the with the blindfold and the AR-15. But there's also the commercials they're doing against each other. Candor is significantly younger, and he's more telegenic. So even when you take Candor and you catch him with his mouth open and, and do the grainy thing with the creepy music over it. <laughs> he's he's more appealing when you do the same thing to to right. Roy Blunt because right. he's older, his face is more weathered, and he, he and and you can throw the lobbyist thing up there. So I think maybe let's gun to my head just to, for another reason to disagree with Kraski. I'll you know <laughs> I'll say candor by yeah. half a percent maybe. Yeah, um, I'm of many minds on this subject, yeah. uh, fellas, because <laughs> I I, I, each day you sort of say, well, no, Jason Candor maybe Blunt. But I do think we're we're seeing something very important, you know, today and over the next couple of days, and that is Roy Blunt is campaigning in Joplin and Springfield, which should be natural territory for him, and bringing in Ted Cruz to help at the end, and I think that suggests that the Blunt people know that they are struggling a little bit with a core constituency, which is that sort of buckle of the Bible Belt area where he is from and should be comfortably ahead. If he feels the need not only to campaign there, but to bring in a surrogate who is very popular among evangelical religious voters, however you want to describe him, that suggests his own polling shows that he's weak in that category. And that's a problem for Roy Blunt. He, he has to win big time in that group uh, to overcome whatever Jason Kander might do. Kander, on the other hand, is campaigning in Sedalia, Warrensburg, Maryville, you know, rural areas where you would think that he would want to concentrate in the urban areas where he needs a huge turnout and he may think he's going to get that and so doesn't need to be in those places. So that suggests to me that Candor is just ever so slightly ahead. The other thing that's fascinating is how come Roy Blunt is underperforming Donald Trump so dramatically in the state? I that's, mean, that's the if question. You think, if you buy that poll, which by the way... Well, but the uh, trend has shown up in a lot of them, right? We're, Trump out does blunt. Yes, but not in other states. In almost every right. other state. Yeah, but all the, the polls in Missouri show right, the trend. You're right, right, right. The down ballot guy in Ohio, Florida, New Hampshire, it, it all ahead, pulling ahead of Trump. And yet in Missouri, it's the opposite, dramatically so. I mean, there's a five-point gap between where Trump is at in the, in the Monmouth poll and where Roy Blunt is at. Why is that? What, what, why do we think that would be is that insider outsider? That part of that, and part of it is, I think Roy Blunt still has some problems with the Republican Party in Missouri. They're mad at him over Todd Aiken. Remember, 
the legitimate rape comment and all the, uh, you know, get Aiken out of the race. And Roy Blunt was at the head of that parade signing a letter along with other former senators urging Aiken to get out. I think that's... I think fewer humans remember that than you do. No, but I think some Republican activists do, and they happen to be at the Republican National Convention and pull me aside and tell me that. That's part of it. And then Mm -hmm. the other part of it is um, I think Roy Blunt has some problems in southwest Missouri, Springfield, Joplin, with this $1.6 million house, and he you know, divorces his first wife, marries a, a, a lobbyist, his kid's a lobbyist. It, it, you, know, you talk to people who are in that part of the country, and they're a little bit uncomfortable with Blunt. Not all of them, and not, you know, it's not a disaster. But at the margins. But at the margins, and in a one-point race, yeah. that, that makes a difference. So I'm going to put my nickel on Jason Kander. At the wire wouldn't be wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Yeah, but um, but but let's be clear. If Jason Kander wins, it'll be one of the great upsets nationally uh, in in this cycle or any cycle, recent cycle. I mean, yeah. Roy Blunt was in the leadership. He's extraordinarily well known. And by the way, fellas, this is going to be a seventy-five million dollar race when it's all over. Uh, that's in a you know a whole other podcast, but. The amount of money being poured into this state to try and influence that outcome is breathtaking because a lot of people think it might be the difference between a Democratic Senate and a Republican Senate. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Okay, so we've got, I guess, two Canders and one and one, one Roy yeah. Blunt. We'll see what happens. Okay, the big kahuna, the big cheese, the top of the ticket, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Let's uh, pause it out of the gate that Trump will carry Kansas and Missouri. I don't think anybody doubts that at any level. Won't be close in either state. Could be closer in Kansas than Missouri if the polls are accurate. I saw a Kansas poll uh, the other day that had Trump plus eight. And, uh, again, the uh, the Monmouth poll had him plus 14. People said to me, wrote emails to me, by the way, oh, that can't be right. He can't be up 14. Well, if, if they have, as they did, the Senate race tied and the governor's race tied no one doubts that reality, so it's sort of hard to go, well, that that's real, but the 14 can't be real. So maybe double digits does make some sense for Trump in Missouri. So let's just, you know, out of the gate, it's not going to be competitive in either state. So who wins this thing, Crash? You mean nationally, you're nationally. talking about. Becca, what do you got, why do you guys think Missouri is that it's crazy I, I don't know. Why do you, do you have a sense of that at all? Hillary Clinton is just resoundingly unpopular in this state. Um, you know, I was, I was wondering about this, too. The Democrats haven't really contested Missouri now in a while. They backed out in 2004. They gave it the, uh, the yeoman's effort in 2008 and fell slightly short and then bailed on uh, the state in 2012 and 2016. So Democrats aren't competing here and making their case to any great degree. Yeah, but Republicans aren't either by the same token. Well, I guess that's right. But as the state has shifted more to the right and, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's name in the state is just mud. But here's what's interesting. It hasn't shifted that much to the right if we think that Chris Coster and Jason Kander have legitimate chances statewide. I mean, certainly they're you know, moderate conservative Democrats, but they're still Democrats. I mean, so, um, and yet, it, it, I tweeted this out yesterday. If if Trump wins by 14 in Missouri, Missouri will not be considered competitive presidentially for another 50 years. I mean, that, mm-hmm. you are really, you know, if Trump can win by double-digit margins in this state, no, I mean, Mitt Romney only won by nine. So if Trump wins by more than that, uh, I, I think Democrats will write this state off at the presidential level 
you know, until, forever, you know, right. for another five or six decades, it's just unrecoverable that way. I think things change faster than that. But, it, yeah, it'll, for a couple cycles. Right. right. I mean, it, because the progression is very clear. If we go back to 2000 even, uh, you know, it's it's plus one for the Democrat, then it's plus five for the Republican, then plus nine for the Republican, and then plus 14. Barack Obama couldn't carry Missouri in 2008. That speaks vi in, in, at the zenith of his, the height of his popularity, of his movement, if you will, across this country. He still lost Missouri. Yeah. The way I explain it is Obama in 2008 won the nation plus six by six points. He was a virtu he virtually tied McCain in Missouri, so he underperformed the Republican by six points in Missouri. Well, that gap turns to 14 points in 2012 against Mitt Romney, and if it comes into you know 18 or 20, that's points, a lot of points. That's just a lot of movement, which you know again another podcast about the changes culturally that the presidential race. Uh, you know, you talk about an issueless race. There's been the only issue in this race is Donald Trump and Hillary mm -hmm. Clinton. And when that that choice reaches Missourians, they almost always opt for Trump if the polls are be to believe. But we don't care about that. We declare about who's the next president of the United States. Yeah. So, Cannon, you're on the hot seat. Who, who? What do you think of these campaigns, and where do you think we are? Well, my first big caveat, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, I think I'll, Hillary, I think, will probably win. My my big caveat is, I think that the Trump folks are probably underpolled, or at least that we can't trust the polls. That that the world has changed in which pollsters are operating. That the, the shift to, I'm not sure everybody understands the shift to cell phones and the death of landlines has mean the cost of polling has gone through right, the right, roof. Right, right. So pollsters are cutting corners here and there. They're smart about it, and they're generally right. And I think the trends we're seeing from week to week, month to month, are accurate. But I don't know that we can trust polls. You know, if they might, polls would, if Clinton is up nationally by four points at going in, you know, the, the weekend going in, and she loses by one or two points, that doesn't mean polls are wrong. It means they're just only so accurate. Right, I mean, it's like right. I, I've got a gun that could hit the target. If I don't hit the bullseye, is the gun no good? You know. So, so Dave's right. question was, who's going to win the damn race? <laughs> well, I, I started out saying Hillary, I, and, and but um, and I, I think the Comey letter hurt just because it threw this new level of uncertainty, gave some enthusiasm to the Trump folks who were right. you know written off, although he'd been gaining a little bit. So I'll shut up for a minute and hear what you guys say. But what, before we go on to that, though. Uh, what do you think of the campaigns of the two candidates? I mean, what is there anything, if you think Hillary is going to pull it out, has she run a good campaign in your view? Has she, you know, what, what about her tactical choices, his tactical choices, and what that says about the state of politics? Yeah, I, I think Hillary's campaign, by all accounts, is far better than their candidate. Um, but she, but she performed. She, you know, David Axelrod made the point, uh, who was the, the Obama whisperer, that uh, at the big touchstone moments, the convention, the three debates, she scored big on every one of them. And it, and, and in the background of that, they've been putting together ground campaigns, money raising campaigns. So they've done all that very well. I'm not sure that they could have done anything all that different strategically, other than her be a more candid, open genuine sort of person, which is just difficult for her to do as a right, candidate. Right, right, right. Um, strategically, I think the, the Trump general election campaign has been a disaster from beginning to end. And he's only done well when he's sort of disappeared and stayed on 
teleprompter, which he's sort of done the last week, right. and which I think he'll do he's being the a good week boy coming now. ahead. Um, but every time he's let loose, which he often is, he does damage to his own campaign because he he makes it about him instead of about her. And the the very true cliche of this campaign is whoever it's about at the moment is is the one who's losing. Right. Right. All right, Chris, you know, I, I agree with everything uh, Scott said, basically. I, I think Clinton will hang on and win this thing. I think her margin in the Electoral College has dropped from 340, 330 perhaps, into the low 300s or upper 290s. Um, but I, I agree with everything you said. I, at the end of the day, I don't think this country is going to elect Donald Trump. We talk a lot about this notion of voters who won't tell pollsters they're going to vote for Trump and they go in and vote for Trump. I think at the end of the day, there's going to be just uh, some of the opposite effect as well, which will be people going in and saying, do I really want him to be the, my, my leader for the next four years? You know, maybe not, and they'll vote for somebody else, whether it's Hillary yeah, or Yeah, I actually else. think in some in a way it's not quite as true of her, but when, when he seems like he has a chance at winning, that that might hurt him a little bit. Yeah. Some, some people say, well, okay, this is going to count. Yeah. They, they might back off a little bit. But I really will be eager to see, assuming she wins, what she does in the next few weeks. There's talk about a world tour to sort of undo some of the damage that Trump has inflicted. You know, she's got to do something to get some semblance of, of momentum in the country behind her, you know, whether that's doing a speaking tour around the country, you know, going to places of the country where she's not popular and, and saying, I want to be your president, too. She's got to change that math after the election to sort of give her a fighting chance to govern this country. To me, that'll be as interesting as anything. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll make it unanimous. I think Hillary Clinton wins, but I think she wins only because of the demographic advantage that Democrats have at the national level, yeah. plus the electoral college advantage. When you have California and New York automatically yeah. in your column, it becomes very difficult almost out of the gate for any Republican, even the generic Republican. I think she wins because she's more organized. She has more sort of on the ground, ground door knocking, turnout generating people. Uh, Trump completely uh, you know, ignored that part of politics, which I still think still think is relevant in some ways. And she has more money. She's going to just carpet bomb them in the last week with commercials. Mm -hmm. So those are all technical, strategic things that says nothing about her candidacy, her messages, her outreach. I think she wins kind of by default. Right. She, she just yeah. has advantages that he doesn't have. But I will say this. I think that it's been very clear to me for almost a year now certainly for the last six months, that the strategy of both campaigns has, in essence, been to disqualify the other candidate. I'm so unpopular, no one's going to vote for me, but, it, it, but they may vote against the other guy one way or the other. And, and, and every effort has been made by the Clinton campaign to disqualify Trump. And you, it, that makes some sense because he's done so many disqualifying things. I mean, we, we, when this is over, we can just make a list of all the things that in any other candidate you would go, well, he's through. You know, you can't mm -hmm. say these things or do these things. You know, his tax record alone is a nightmare. I mean, in most races, right. if Mitt Romney had had those kind of tax problems, he, you know, we would have said no chance. For Trump, it's just another blip on the radar. When you make the other, when you make your opponent the issue, and try to disqualify him or her. If it doesn't work, if you don't, if 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 you don't in essence slay the dragon, then I think he or she can come back, get some momentum, get you know get some sort of wind at your back, crusadey 
and I think that's what has to scare the crap out of the Clinton people right now, right. that they threw everything they could think of at the guy, and he still is competitive. And he threw everything at himself. And he threw everything. He, he did everything. If, if you're sitting in the Clinton war room, you're thinking, <laughs> you know, the classic, how are we losing to this guy? But but it didn't bury him. It, every time we thought, boy, he's through. Boy, the groping of the crotch, that's going to kill him. Oh, the tax thing's going to get him. No, it's the immigration thing. It's the Miss Piggy. No, that's going to get rid of him. You, you just go down the list, and nothing nothing buried him. And so, at the end, he's kind of like the guy who can't be buried. And he, you know, no matter what you she. say. And, and, of course, it works in the other direction, but... To me, Clinton is a much more traditional politician yes, yeah. with a traditional approach, and so she's ready for all the negative stuff. And it's just a very classic, you know, 20th century race. Trump is is just something else, and and to the extent that any of us understand him, I think the dynamic is because we're all thinking, how could anybody vote for Donald Trump? But the reality is, those things are all asked and answered, and and if if all the things that he's done have not disqualified him, then nothing's going to disqualify him. And that's why he leads by 14 points in Missouri. Because you could grab somebody in Missouri and say, how, how are you voting for Trump? And they'll say, you know, he did this and this and this. I don't care. I don't care. It isn't that they don't know. It isn't that it's been a secret. They know what they're getting with Donald Trump. They're fine with it. Now, part of it is they don't like Hillary. There's no question about that. But I think the other part is, once you pile, you know, sort of Error after error after error, errors become un insignificant. You okay? I get it. He's, he's, you know, he's allowed. He's, you know, whatever. And but in that case, he gets a, he gets momentum at the end. It's not just anti-Hillary. It's politics is broken. Yes. And the way to you, you'd need something dramatic, a nuclear bomb, uh, rhetorically, right, right, right. metaphorically here, to to fix things. You know, when he talks about the election being rigged, it sort of resonates with. Dang it! The world feels rigged to a lot of people. Right. And and that although and although that's it. It's what it's not Donald Trump per se. It's what he represents, and and that's what the next president, Hillary Clinton, is, uh, presumably has to address. Is this sense that that so many people are un, unhappy, angry, upset with what's been happening in Washington? The the game is rigged. You know the the the, the rich people are getting ahead against the against the poor folks. And that's what she has to, to tackle. And to she's some particularly ill-suited to yes. respond to that because her biggest industry that she gets her money from is securities, the securities industry. Well, but, but she's, she's establishment in every she's establishment way. Establishment in every she's, way. She's, but, but if she wants to govern, she's got to get into that space and recognize it and acknowledge it and figure out some way to take a piece out of it and address it in, in, in and a she'll, substantive I'm, I'm sorry, she's going to fail at that. Well, and, and then her be presidency a will fail, Scott. Yeah. It, well, I, I think not, I mean, one term or two terms, I don't think that there is anything she can say that will make the hardcore Trump people happy. I mean, I've never seen... You know, uh, but partly because she doesn't have the credibility on no, those but I mean, very yeah, issues. No, I agree with that. But 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 take Barack Obama, who who, who is scandal free. You know, today fifty five percent approval. I don't know if we say scandal free. That's relatively right, scandal free. Okay. But it's certainly not scandalous in the way that Hillary Clinton has been scandalous, right. which is a or Bill Clinton thing, was, or right, Bill Clinton right. for that matter, not even close, or Donald yeah. Trump. You put Obama against Trump, I still think it, it, Obama wins, but 
a certain large percentage of the Trump supporters will would not reconcile themselves to him yeah. or to any Democrat, yeah. no yeah. matter what he or she ends up saying. I just think, you know, and 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 so in that sense, oh God, you think this race is really damaged. And to be fair, if Trump wins. Same thing. The Democrats. There's no Democrats that have any patience for anything he's doing. Well, let al- let alone the sort of institutional government people. Yeah. I mean, if Trump wins, I mean, that not re- Republican or Democrat. How does what does Paul Ryan do? You know, what does Mitch McConnell do? What does the Republican conservative establishment, if Trump wins, there not only a real will, insurgency against him. Right. Yeah. And, of course, Trump will have every reason to freeze them out anyway. He, you know, he, mm-hmm. they all, you know, decline to give them give him enthusiastic support. You know, if you're Paul Ryan and you show up to President-elect Donald Trump's headquarters, Trump is going to make you sit out in the waiting room for a while and, you know, with a cup of coffee and a bagel. I mean, that, yeah. so, so, you know, I... I think you're right, Steve, that after this election, healing will be important, but I just don't see it. I don't see see how you come out of this contentious race with anything like a sense of consensus with the American people. I just, I just, I know that sounds cynical and pessimistic, but I think it doesn't bode well for the next four years. The reality of it doesn't. So, a one term president presidency is already going to be forecast and widely predicted here. All so. right. Well, so we're all on a yeah. agreement. It's Hillary Clinton by a nose maybe at the end yeah. and and, uh, and then nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the next Very four cheery. years. Okay. We vote and then hate each other all some right. more. Stand by for just a minute. Uh, I, I do want to play this little bit from, um, from Hunter Woodall about the Kansas uh, Supreme Court retention race and then we'll be back on the other side. Now with Hunter Woodall of the Kansas City Star, who is our uh, Topeka correspondent. Hunter, great to have you here on Deep Background. How are you doing? Doing fine day. Pretty good. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about one of the most important, and we thought one of the most aggressive races on the Kansas side this year, which is the retention battle over five judges on the uh, state Supreme Court. And we were told all along, boy, pay attention to this. It's going to get brutal and lots of mailers, lots of ads. It doesn't seem like two weeks out it's been quite as aggressive as we thought it would be. Talk to us a little bit about about the retention battle and, 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 and how, how it sort of played out now with just a few weeks to go. Well, it's been sort of surprising because shortly after Labor Day, you had you know, the four former governors, including Kathleen Sebelius and Bob Graves, come out and say, okay, we want the judges retained. And it's, it kind of cooled off. There have been some ads that have gone out. There's a billboard, I believe, on I-70 saying, you know, vote out for the judges retained Stigall, the one right, Brownback right. appointee. But there haven't been too many other events. Um, that I guess you had the AG, the, uh, Steve Six, and um, Bob Steffen, mm-hmm. who's been around for a long time. They had a news conference, Steffen, a Republican, saying, in essence, hey, we need to keep these judges. Um, why do you think that is? Well, because uh, uh, for strategic reasons, or is it getting lost in the noise of everything else going on? I think there is a lot of noise, and obviously, you know, the Kansas for Fair Courts, the ones that are wanting to retain all five, had an ad saying, you know, if you do vote out these judges, you're going to get Brownback clones in, uh, which isn't exactly true because the governor appoints the judges from a, from a nominating commission right, of right. three. Um, I think it's a little bit hard for people to wrap their heads around because, you know, it's a yes-no vote that usually is pretty sleepy, obviously, in 2014. Um, it was, you know, the two judges got 53% with the, you know, right, f- the right. relatives of the Carr brothers victims saying, hey, vote these judges out. I think it's still kind of a heady topic. Plus, the other thing is you get the sense in Johnson County 
that the judges are seen kind of as a supporter of public schools and a bulwark against the conservatives in the legislature and Governor Brownback and their approach to schools and taxes. I, I know the judges are pretty controversial down in Wichita because of the Carr brothers case and some other decisions they've reached. That seems to have balanced out a little bit. You don't, you don't get a sense, I don't anyway, in this part of the state of a great outrage about the way the Supreme Court has run or the decisions that they've reached. The opposite seems to be the case, that you see sort of a support from the moderate part of the mm -hmm. county. Am I reading that right? That that, And maybe that's why it hasn't been as aggressive as we thought it was going to be. No, I think that is right because, I mean, the Kansas Republican Party as a whole is saying that they don't want to retain four of the five judges. But you talk to some moderates in Johnson County, and they like what the judges have done with education funding, including you know, kind of holding the legislators' feet to the fire on the special session. Um, they're not they're not coming out so much and saying we don't want them to be retained. They're, I think they are, are kind of uncomfortable with what the Republican Party is saying, like Speaker Rick Merrick's office is still sending out emails saying, hey, House these judges keep Stigall, which is a little bit hard saying House four of the five, don't yeah. oust all five. Yeah. The other dynamic I think is happening in that race is the one guy who wants to change the system more than anybody is Sam Brownback. He happens to be pretty unpopular now. <laughs> I mean, he's not exactly, he isn't the guy that you put in the commercial saying, hey, let's let's get rid of these judges, because that would almost hurt the hurt the, uh, the, the effort in some ways, right or not right? No, I think that's correct. And it's been interesting. Like he had a meeting um, with reporters recently. He said, look, I'm glad the discussion's happening, but I'm not going to get involved with it. And in 2014, he obviously was much more involved right. in the retention race. That's so sort of typically passive-aggressive brownback. You know, I'm not... I'm not really, I'm glad we're having this discussion, you know, when secretly, you know, he really wants to change the way. I mean, he's been fighting on judges for almost his entire term. Well, that, that line about activist judges does get played out a lot in Topeka, and that still has been the line from some of those more conservative Republicans that these judges really are just trying to wreak havoc. And, you know, I think the Jeff Melcher quote was, drop little turds. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> you can say turds on podcasts. <laughs> um, you, you, you get the sense that, um, uh, that, uh, it's also down the ballot a little bit, you know, just physically down the ballot, and that means people pay a little bit less attention to it. Do we expect that to change over the last two weeks, or are the mailbox go mailboxes going to get, you know, filled with, with appeals to, you know, overturn the judges or get rid of the judges in the last week or so? I have heard, you know, mail obviously there have been door knockers, there have been ma I think mailers are going to go out, but Kansans for fair courts, so judge, you know, wanting to retain all five is aiming more, it sounds like, towards like advertising. They have YouTube videos, I believe. They they've are. got a pretty sophisticated, I mean, they've got press releases. They've had, they've organized these press conference events. Whereas the other two groups are a little more, you know, low-key. Um, you have the, you know, Kansans for Life are kind of spurning one of these groups. And, you know, they're, they're just saying it's an abortion issue, future abortion cases. They want everybody but Skull gone. They're focusing more on mailers. Kansans for Justice, you know, the ones right, right. ties to the Car Brother victims. They have done a few YouTube videos, but I haven't seen anything from them recently. Right, right. Just for listeners who don't know, the uh, Carr brothers' story refers to some brutal murders down in the Wichita area, and the death penalty was uh, was um, overturned by some of the judges who are up for retention votes. That's angered a lot of people in Wichita, and some of the Carr relatives have stepped forward, not Carr relatives, but relatives of victims have stepped forward. To, uh, to say maybe the judges should go. And again, that's a big issue in Wichita, but it doesn't seem to have quite the resonance here. I, I will tell you that I did a, a forum, uh, admittedly, of moderate and liberal candidates for state legislative and Senate races, state House and Senate races, about three weeks ago. 
And I asked for, it was on criminal justice, and I asked for a show of hands on who would vote to um, abolish the death penalty. And virtually all said yes. I mean, I think there's a lot. And, of course, Brownback has always been ambivalent about the death penalty, too. So the death penalty is an issue in the judge's case is important for some people, but would not, you know, uh, uh, it, it doesn't seem to have electrified the, all of the people in Kansas the way you thought it might in this case. Right or not? I know. I, I agree. I mean, you talk to some candidates in the race in general, they just say there's a lot of static. And that's the thing. Obviously, in Kansas, there's, you know, you don't have governor on the ballot, you don't have attorney general, you don't have secretary of state. You have the, two, the Senate race. That's obviously not getting that much attention with Moran. But there's really no high-profile state race. People have thought maybe right, the Supreme right. Court race will be it, and it really hasn't kind of, turned out to be that. No, it hasn't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these people are you know more worried about you know Trump, and then obviously you know Kevin Yoder's race becoming more yeah, competitive. Yeah. Now that you're hitting and uh, sitting in the hot seat, well, I'm glad I said that slowly. Uh, let me get your views just quickly on state legislative races. Do we have a feel for that at all in terms of which way? the legislature might lean November 9th? Well, it's definitely going to be more moderate just based off the primaries alone. Right. Um, you know, the battle kind of now has been whether some of these Democrats are going to beat out the moderates and vice versa because the moderates are now having to try and campaign, you know, as just true Republicans. And you have people attacking them as you know, right. possibly being in line with Brownback, um, which, you know, like, for example, Dinah Sykes, a state Senate candidate in District 21, has been struggling with that with Logan Healy, right. a 23-year-old Democrat. They've been trading barbs. Uh, you saw some conservatives who are fighting off challengers. Mary Pilcher Cook is running against a Democrat. Right, she's right. obviously been one of the more conservative members of the Senate. Um, and she stood, for the most part, she stood by Brownback. She told me a few weeks ago that she wouldn't, you know, in, hurt her integrity to, she wouldn't, wouldn't make an issue wouldn't of her Wouldn't abandon him, yeah. Wouldn't abandon him, and she'd stick, she, she was sticking by him on You know, things. I'm interested that, you know, Brownback seems to be raising his profile a little bit more. You know, he, I think he did a radio interview as we taped this. Uh, on October 19th, he's done the news conferences with you guys. Is that, I'm sure he would say, oh, it's just the normal give and take, but it seems like he understands what's at stake and thinks like there is some residual support for him uh, that could be translated into some victories in November. Am I right? I think he has, he has faith in his base. I mean, he did make an interesting comment um, when he invited reporters up to briefly talk to him. Uh, earlier this month, and he kind of, you know, he, he thinks the media is still covering him wrong. He thinks that a lot of this campaign season is actually a myth. Uh, you know, when he keeps saying the tax plan, tax cuts are working, the tax plan is fine. Um, but he does. You know, the, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but I get it all the time myself. But does he really believe that? He, I think he does. He, he's kept up the faith, and I mean, if he doesn't believe it, he does. He's definitely maintained that this is working. That we are covering it wrong. You know, he will tell us. Kansas has great highways. Kansas is, you know, he. I believe he said it was a rural recession. Kansas right. is in this week. He, he's right. not. Admitting of course, the, the chuckle for that is always, well, the tax cuts are working except over the things over which we have no control. Well, the whole point was you don't control everything through tax cuts. But he doesn't see any of that logic typically, does he? And he blames reporters for how people conceive, you know, how people see that and how how uh, you know voters see it and reporters. Well, it was interesting because I think he was actually a little bit more critical of reporters recently in a, in a speaking engagement in Wichita. And then in this meeting with reporters, he was kind of saying, look, I appreciate what you do. I don't agree with what you do sometimes, but I still appreciate it. I think we were all kind of surprised. He was trying yeah. to actually be nice to us. Well, I, that's, of course, a podcast for another day because Brownback remains a fascinating figure in Kansas politics and, and uh, will have at least some role in what happens in November. But just to circle back before we uh, call it a day, 
so do we get a sense in November which way the legislature will go independent of what happened in the primary? I mean, did, are the moderates saying we've got a lock, or do you think we wake up on November 9th with, with working majorities in either house for moderate slash Democrats? We certainly won't get to a veto-proof majority, one would think, in either house. Mm-hmm. That suggests some stalemate unless Brownback changes his approach, but maybe you have a different feel for it a couple weeks out. Well, you know, Senate President Susan Wagle, you know, introduced a plan for to, to better Kansas recently, and she had a lot of moderates on there. She had enough on there, if they win, to maintain leadership. And the, the sense was that she'd actually call, I believe in another radio interview, called them my moderates. My moderates, you know, are with me, more or less. And I, some Democrats were upset hearing that and about how they kind of show they're with leadership. Um, but it sounds like the Republicans do think that they're going to do just fine. You know, some of the Democrats do think they have some pickup opportunities. Um, I believe I've talked to some folks. They pick out Mary Pilcher Cook seat on um, that Logan Healy race, and also C. Fitzgerald's race over in the Leavenworth area. But it seems to be it's going to be the moderate Republicans might are probably going to do just fine. All right, great. Hunter Woodall with the Kansas City Star and the Topeka Journal. Thanks, Topeka Journal, the Topeka uh, Kansas City Star Bureau. The Topeka Journal is a newspaper, capital journal side. Okay, Hunter, thanks for that. We're back now with Steve Kresge and Scott Cannon. Any final thoughts as we wrap up uh, the deep, the last deep background before Let's wrap it up election and go day? Vote, yeah, right. We're yeah. all going to vote. How about you, Scott? Any any lessons we can learn? I know we're working on a story that sort of talks a little bit about what this campaign has done to us as a country. Any sense of that at all? Well, I, the, the story that we're, we're talking about we're, is, is just what the campaign has told us about where we stand now, that the way it's uh, – it reflects our fractured media and, and the way in which we can't get along with each other, I think, in terms of so many issues from race to sex and, and on down the line. I, I, I think this election has shown us to be even more polarized than we thought we were. Yeah. And uh, not to be gloomy, but I don't see it changing soon. Yeah. yeah, the only lesson I think I take away is how inadequate we are as reporters in explaining what's going on. You I especially. Think we've t- yeah, Particularly me, I mean, I've 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 read everything I can read about the Trump phenomenon, and I've uh, you know, I still don't think anyone completely understands what's going on. I mean, it's kind of our job to understand yeah. it and then report it to people, and I've never been through a cycle where I felt less confident about what I'm seeing and what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, it, mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit into any category. I don't think any of us would have predicted a year ago that we'd be sitting here talking about Donald Trump with a legitimate chance of being the next president of the United States. Right. And, uh, and he was at 1%. Yeah. And how he got from there to here will take, I think, years, maybe decades to fully comprehend and the damage that it does, not his candidacy so much, but the damage of the polarization, which I think reached its zenith this cycle, may take equally long to repair, which, again, is pessimistic, but I think is realistic as well. All right, Steve Kraske with KCUR. Thanks, up David. To date. Uh, thanks for being with us for Deep Background. Scott Cannon with The Star, thanks for being with us. Yep. As always, we've uh, really appreciated people who've downloaded the podcast and told their friends about it, written emails, subscribed, all that good stuff. By the way... We will do one more next Wednesday, the day after the election, when we hope we have uh, uh, results to all these races. I saw something. There's a lot of talk about 269 to 269 at the presidential level or, you know, uh, one side winning the popular vote, the other the electoral vote, which would be nightmares beyond all 
you know, comprehension, but maybe that's the reality we'll face. Regardless, we'll talk about it next Wednesday. And then Deep Background will go on a bit of a hiatus just to catch our breath. And then we'll return, and uh, we're going to expand the uh, footprint a little bit and talk not, not just about politics, but, but uh, other stories that we're covering here at the Star and talk to other smart reporters here other than Kraske and Cannon, who are the smartest people in the building. So, again, thanks so much for being with us. For now, you have been on Deep Background.